Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Stay Grounded. Hope you guys are all having a fantastic start, middle, or end of your week. This week's guest is Mr. Michael Dash. So Michael became an addict when he was just 11 years old, and it happened in a really innocent and even accidental manner. So after he won his first ever bet during a family Thanksgiving dinner, Michael went on a streak of a 20-year gambling addiction and adopted an extremely addictive personality that didn't just stop at gambling. So he kept chasing the highs. The more he got, the more he needed, which led him to drugs of all sorts and just a life where he was constantly chasing this outward success and this addiction to doing well. And all of that worked. I mean, especially as entrepreneurs, you know, like that's actually something that I personally struggle with too, is just that addiction to the outward measures of success. And it's something I've struggled with for a very long time. And Michael's no different. Right out of school, he was earning six figures and he worked his butt off to ensure that he could fuel his obsessions, but he wasn't happy. He was angry, isolated, and self-loathing. And that got him wrangled into a million dollar lawsuit with his ex-business partner and life slowly started to, to fall down a spiral. It wasn't until he went to an event in Bali uh, that showed him the principles of flow, which really opened up a different line of questioning that just inspired him to live a different way. From that trip, Michael turned his life around. He began transforming from the angry addict to a life of fulfillment and freedom. And in this episode, he shares how he did it. So everything from how uh, death enabled him to let go of the lawsuit that was draining his life, how simple habits can remove the stranglehold of addiction, to how tribes lead to fulfillment. This was actually incredibly insightful for me, the idea of tribes and how tribes can really keep you accountable. And so I can't wait for you guys to hear about that and so much more. You know, Michael's story is proof that pain has a purpose and your mess can become your message. So if you have an addictive personality or if you know someone who does, I think this episode is really going to give you some insight and clarity into how you can transform addictions into a meaningful way of living a fulfilled life. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Michael has a ton of amazing resources for people who are trying to transform that addictive personality into something more. And we talk about that on the show and all of those links are included in the show notes. So feel free to check those out. But before we get started, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever your method of madness is. All that means is that every time we launch a new episode, it just falls right into your app and uh, ready for you to enjoy. Uh, let me know your biggest takeaways from this episode, whether it's on Instagram or via email or via, man, you can, or reviews, whatever your 
method is. Please let me know what you love and don't love. And I hope you guys enjoy this one. This one was intriguing and it made me think a lot about my own journey and how I can fuel and use um, the addictions to the good things in life as a vehicle for experiencing fulfillment in the day-to-day. So without further ado, here is my friend, Mr. Michael Dash. Yo, yo, yo! Welcome back to another episode of Stay Grounded. Girl, having an awesome day so far. Man, I'm so pumped. So, so, so pumped to be hanging out with my new friend, Mr. Dash. How are you? I am excellent. How are you? I'm fantastic, man. I'm fantastic. I know we've been trying to make this happen for a little bit, and I'm glad that it's finally here. Yeah, this is great. I'm excited. It's a good day. It's a good day. So I already introduced you um, in all of your glory uh, prior to this going live, but I wanted to dive in. Cause I remember when I was reading your, your bio in a way, what drew me out about your story was just how candidly vulnerable you were about your addictions. Can you describe what those addictions were? Were they addictions in the traditional sense or in the non-traditional sense? And paint us a picture of how those addictions were showing up in your life. Yeah, well, to answer that question, it would first depend on what you classify as traditional and non-traditional, but mine were all over the board, so they probably fall into both categories. Mine started when I was introduced to gambling at 11 years old by my uncle at Thanksgiving dinner. The first bet I ever made, I won. And it was probably the worst thing that ever could have happened to me because that, and my uncle, I'm sure, didn't know at the time, but that led to a 20-year gambling addiction. My fa- I grew up the son of an entrepreneur, so my father had his own business, and I would work for him when I was very young, 11, 12, 13, 14, all the way up, and I would work in his warehouse. So my uncle introduced me to gambling, but all the guys in the warehouse gambled. So then they would take bets for me. They would help me gamble. Then they would start taking me to the horse track in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. And we would we would work on Saturdays in the warehouse. And then I would tell my dad one of them's taking me home, but we would go to the racetrack. And then they would put in bets for me on the horses. Because only in Jersey style could this happen. My little league baseball coach was a bookie. And so he's taking bets for me. So I'm off to the races gambling, you know, at a young age, start playing cards uh, all the time with my friends. You know, that's what we did. That was the first addiction I had when I went to college. In high school, I was a pretty straight-laced kid. I did gamble all through high school, but I was a three-sport guy, you know, president of the student council, plan the prom. You know, I was that guy. Did the announcements on the PA at school. Like, uh, had the comb over. You know, that was me. And, uh, but when I went to college, I was in a small high school, 500 kids, seven through 12. So there were like 89 in my graduating class. I wanted to go to a big college. I went to the University of Maryland which had like 30,000 people. And when I went there, that's when I started experimenting with drugs. My roommate, second year in, was shot with a 357 Magnum by his ex-girlfriend. And it blew out his tricep. It was crazy. And when I came back from semester break, I went into our dorm room and he just had lines of bottles of pills everywhere. 
because of his injuries. So I'm like, well, what is that? And he'd be like, oh, this one's really good. You should try this one. And I'm like, okay. And then I'm like, what's that one? And he's like, well, you know, I think you might have taken a little too much of the other one. You should take a little bit of this one. It'll take the edge off of that one. And so that just started like this. And I started experimenting. And then, you know, with marijuana, cocaine, and I really developed the cocaine habit, which was an addiction coming out of college and work moving to New York City and getting my first job and working my way up in New York City. Cocaine was everywhere, you know, especially on the weekends when you're in your 20s and you're at the clubs and you're partying and you're doing well for yourself, you see coke everywhere. And it came to a point where the high of gambling wasn't high enough for me. So I needed something else to like get that original high feeling of gambling back. And that was cocaine. So I mixed the two of those uh, a lot. So those were two of the major addictions that I had all through my 20s. I could go through and, and continue because I had more. Um, but uh, well, I want to focus more because one thing that makes entrepreneurs amazing is our addictive personalities, right? I mean, like, I find myself to be pretty addictive in nature when it comes to a lot of things, whether it's the things I want to work on, the people I want to be around, how relentless I am. I mean, like addictive natures have a positive and a negative. How did your addiction show up in your life? And did you actually experience success as a result of them? And if that was the case, did you ever have a point where you were grateful for your addictions, but then you were also very ungrateful for them just because they had two sides of a coin that gave you something you wanted? Sure. Well, I had this fascination with money growing up. You know, I wanted money. I wanted to be rich. I I used to tell people I'm going to work my butt off and I'm going to retire when I'm 50 and I'm going to buy a yacht and I'm going to sail around the world. I'm going to have women with big leaves fanning me. Like this was the crazy fascination that I came up with in my head. But I actually said that to people who would listen to me. So one thing I was able to maintain is my work ethic. You know, I learned early on from my father. He was a big believer. You're the first in and the last out. You know, you work harder than everybody else and that's how you become successful. Now, I don't believe that, but I did at the time. Now I don't believe it. What do you believe now? I believe you work smarter, not harder. Sometimes you have to do both, but smarter first. Yeah. So I never, never thought of working smarter. I just thought about working harder. You know, that's what I did. So I was always the first in, last out, just like my dad was. I was the first one in my high school to get a job in my grade. I always had a job. I always excelled. I was very good at sales. I could sell ice to Eskimo. You know, we've all heard that saying before, but I could actually do it. When I went to college, I got a job selling home improvements. I started working for my dad and he had a retail business and an import export business. So when I'd be in the warehouse and then I'd be in the retail operation side of things, selling like fine China and crystals and Swarovski and all that stuff. If, if your listeners are familiar with that. So I had no interest in it. Except it was my dad. And if I wanted dinner, I had to go work. So I learned early on how to sell, how to leverage people, how to leverage relationships, how to get people to buy. When I went to college, I got a job selling home improvements. I was going door to door 
in some of the worst areas of the country. Southeast Baltimore was like the murder capital of the world at the time. Yeah. Not the world, the country. And D.C. And there were some rough areas and rough neighborhoods. And I excelled at it. I was very good selling roofing, siding, windows, decks. Coming out of college, being successful was extremely important to me. And I got a job in sports advertising. After two years, I was making six figures. Yeah. And that was a lot of money back then. I mean, it's still a lot of money. But back then, I mean, it's 20 years ago. That was a lot of money. I was doing really well. And despite the addictions, I was addicted to doing well, to kicking mm. butt. Yeah. Like, so despite the gambling addiction, like I worked my butt off so I had enough money to gamble. So I could go party on the weekends with the Coke, right? So was I great? I know I'm not, I'm not grateful for any addiction. You know, I just I feel like the working hard and, and striving to be the best I can be is just something that I have inside me and I could get obsessive with it, yes. But I don't view it like addictive because the addictions themselves, I view as like, I need that. If I don't have that, I will not be able to operate normally. There will be like this void inside of me. What does that void feel like? And I could go on vacation for a week and not have to work. Oh, believe me. And I love every minute of it. <laughs> but I couldn't go away from gambling for a week at the time. Yeah. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do it. The void feels emotionless. That, that going back to your question. The thing about addiction is addictions, unlike people, will never let you down. They will always be there for you. They are your best friend because they're always there. They're also your biggest enemy because of the damage they do to you. But they're always there for you. They're not going to stab you in the back. They're not going to betray you like people can. And I just mentioned that because in my story, those things have happened. Right. And it seems like addictions to these outlets almost became... A replacement for self-love or forgiveness or acceptance and in these practices. Did you have a turning point where you started trading addictions for those more holistic ideas of being kinder to yourself, loving yourself more and, and being present in that? I did. That was about three years ago. So I stopped gambling and actually my book, Chasing the High, talks about some of that and a lot of entrepreneur stuff. But I released the book last week because it was my 14-year anniversary from the last bet I made and the last Congratulations, I man. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, I stopped cocaine. I haven't done cocaine in, in six, seven years. But what I did find was Adderall. Adderall is very prevalent in the entrepreneur community and the communities that I'm a part of now. And I was really addicted to Adderall. I mean, cocaine I did on the weekends. You know, I didn't do it during the week and every day. Gambling, I did every day. But Adderall, I did every single day. I would go into my office. I would keep my stash in my draw, drawer. Everybody laughs at me for the way I say draw. Uh, but it's, it's Jersey. <laughs> but I would keep it right in the desk. And I would pull it open. I'd pop, pop an Adderall every morning, like 20 to 30 milligrams. And it actually changed the way I acted. I was Because it's like cocaine in a pill. I don't know if you're familiar with Adderall, if you've ever yeah. done, you know, I got it because I wanted it. And I went into the doctor and I'm like, yeah, I have uh, ADD. I'm drifting off in the middle of meetings and blah, blah, blah. I made up whatever BS story I needed to, to get the prescription. What it did to me though, is it, when I took one, I, I felt on top of the world. I felt like I could like do anything, 
but I was very short with people. I would not let my employees finish explaining a situation to me. I would cut them off in the middle of it, like saying, I already know what you're going to say. This is the answer. Just go do it. I did not lead from a place of mentorship and empathy. I led from a place of correction and power. Yeah. I, I can I admit it now, like I wasn't the best leader. I could have done a way better job. It wasn't until like the last couple of years that I uh, ran the company and I had started to change really the last year that I started, that the dynamic with my employees completely changed as well. Yeah. When it comes to empathy, why and how did empathy start developing in your day-to-day when it wasn't something that you had practiced in your previous life? Was there a trigger point that started causing you to be more empathetic? Like, did you start experiencing someone else's pain? Talk to me about the, the pain or even just the lessons that came from, I guess, going into more softer space. Like, I feel a lot of like, at least from what I'm getting right now, your story is so much like, Go, 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 go. Did you ever have a space of stillness where you kind of came back into who you were and how you wanted to be? No, uh, <laughs> not until like the last couple of years. However, the empathy I always had. So I had this like double life almost because I would always volunteer. I would always give back to the community. I would always like I was a big part of Leukemia Lymphoma Society and I've raised over $100,000 for them uh, alone. And I ran four marathons with them, raising money. And I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in 2016. It was called Climb for a Cure. So I did this 10-week fundraising blitz for their Man of the Year, Woman of the Year competition. And in 10 weeks, raised $75,000, you know, in honor of this boy and girl who had leukemia, four and five years old. I mean, I had empathy, but they were glimpses of empathy. So I would go, I would do the volunteering event like it was a job or whatever. And then I would go back to being angry, isolated, addicted, self-loathing, all these things. And I was running a company at the same time. The interesting part is the empathy was always there, but I would always hide it by like the ego I had as a CEO of a company and a man thinking that I needed to be what society deems a man needed to be. Let me ask you this. When did that ego dissolve? A couple of years ago. And what happened? Why did that? Like, talk to me about that. So I had moved to Utah. I had started a business from, from New York City. I moved to Salt Lake City, Utah. Slight cultural change. I had an ex-business partner. We started a business together. We built it up to five and a half million dollars after five years. I bought her out. And immediately after, I felt she violated the contract that we had in place. And we entered a lawsuit that lasted six years. And it was totally driven by my ego and by, not my ego, both of our egos. But I take responsibility for my part in it. And emotional decision-making, which if I could give any advice to your audience, well, I could give a lot because I've made a lot of mistakes. But emotional decision-making is the worst decision-making you can make not only in your business, but in your life as well. Take a walk, sit in a room for 10 minutes, come back and react. That's what I learned to do every time I got an email from my lawyers because the emails from my lawyers would just set me off. 
But that was after five years of like emotionally allowing it to drive me. And it affected me in all areas of my life. When we talk about kind of managing that and having that empathy, for me, it was a turning point on a trip I took to Bali, of all places. Magical place. If you ever get to go, go. On my list. Yeah, for sure. I I might move there one day. I went on a retreat called Unconventional Life. Oh, yeah, with Jules? Yeah. Yeah, I know Jules. Jules and I are very good friends. Cool. Cool small world. Yeah, small world indeed. It was the first one she threw. When I was at that event, there were two people on stage talking about flow. I don't know if you know Jackie and Justin. Mm -hmm. They started the Flow Consciousness Institute. And the whole premise behind flow is living an effortless life by making decisions by following your intuition through your heart versus your head. And if it's not a hell yes, it should be an F no in everything that you do in your life. And I never ran my life like that. And I never thought about life like that. I just thought, no, these are things I have to do. But at the time, I was running a company that was running me. I was in a lawsuit that I couldn't get out of my own way. The time I had spent over $700,000 on it. it. That lawsuit I spent over a million dollars on. That should be in my bank account. What's gone? So I was at the point of, I was open to kind of like my resistance to like these things like flow and energy and astrology and people in that realm was starting to drop a little. My ego was starting to drop a little. No, I didn't have all the answers. Actually, I had none of the answers. That was starting to click because internally I was in so much agony and pain and self-loathing. But nobody knew on the outside because I had this arrogant, egotistical side of me that looked like everything was together. And this, oh, this guy's running a company. He's got everything going on. He's got a couple houses. He's got this. He's got that. But I was actually miserable, completely miserable. You know, going home, smoking pot every night, watching two, three hours of reality TV, eating a pound of sushi. You know, that was my, uh, that was my, most of my nights because I was just wanted to escape from everything. So when I heard them talking about flow, I did meet it with resistance, but then I spoke to him afterwards and something just in my mind clicked. And I kept saying to myself on the flight back from Bali to Salt Lake City, would it be so bad to live a different way? Mm. And I just sat with that sentence. And the answer, was no. (laughs) Obviously, it would be amazing actually to live a different way. And so for the first time, I think that was the first point where I felt myself letting my ego go, letting my preconceived notions about this go. And I signed up and took their course. And their course changed my life. And we went through this clearing of limiting beliefs where you're actually writing out your limiting beliefs. And then you're verbally speaking them and you're actually tapping I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah, with I know tapping. Yeah. So you're tapping and there's some EMDR. Can you explain what tapping is to anybody who's listening? I can try. <laughs> so tapping is like you take your two fingers, uh, your index finger, your middle finger, and you're like tapping in the back of your neck between like your spine and the right side of your neck area. And there's like a nerve there and you're tapping and you're, you're tapping it. And you're moving your eyes 
And believe me, people, if you're listening to this, I thought it was completely weird too, but I just did it, went with it. You're moving your eyes right back and forth, right to left, while you're repeating these limiting beliefs to clear the beliefs. So for instance, a limiting belief that change, everybody believes, or not everybody, a lot of people think change is difficult. And I did too, because I couldn't, I was like, there's no way I can change. I can't change the fact that I'm running this company. I can't change the fact that I'm in this lawsuit. So I convinced myself that change is difficult. So you're repeating this out loud. You're tapping the back of your neck here. You're moving your eyes right and left and you're breathing. I thought it was weird, but I did it. And they told me, look, this is going to really, you're going to be emotionally exhausted when you're done with this and you're probably going to have to lay down. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I run marathons. I'm like, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. But they were absolutely right. I don't know what it is, but it takes this energetic force from you. And so I started doing that. And then they went through the process of implanting positive beliefs. So just the opposite of the negative belief. Change is difficult, then change is easy. And I went through this process and then things started shifting in my life. And there were other, you know, modules of their course and things started shifting for me in my life. And I was just, I was able to start and they they were big into like manifestation and synchronicity and all these words that never even entered my vocabulary. I never said those words before three years ago. I never said manifest or manifestation. I mean, I grew up in Jersey. We don't say words like that, right? We don't believe in stuff like that. We just don't. That's not how we're trained, taught. So that's not how society is. It wouldn't be so hard on yourself. I don't think most people are trained, taught, or shown how to believe in things they can't see. Well, yeah, but I mean, they know the word manifest. I don't even know what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate that. Um, so I took the course and things, things started shifting for me. And I was able, it didn't happen overnight, but through continued work of this process, I was finally able to clear my ego aside and to settle my lawsuit. And that was the first step in changing my life. I was in this lawsuit so much. I'm like, why would I settle a lawsuit? I've already spent $700,000. No, I have to see this through. But it wasn't resolving itself. We went to trial, actually. There was a... and, and. the jury ruled and I actually won, but the lawyers couldn't agree on lawyer fees. And this was going on for eight months. And I said, no, I have, this has to end. I, I'm not living one more day w- dealing with this, focusing on this. Because what, what had ca- come into my mind is nobody's going to give a rat's behind when I'm dead if I won or lost this lawsuit. That's a really powerful tool. Yeah. Almost like you you went to death to remind yourself of what was important in the moment. And even if it was something that you were immersed in for six years, it's almost like that realization allowed you to sort of step aside from the person who was in the driver's seat and trade spaces. 100%. Sometimes you need the, it's about how you frame things. I could frame it that, no, you've already spent six years of your life. This will be over in another six months. Why won't you just see it through? Or I could frame it. Nobody's going to care when you're dead if you won or lost the lawsuit. Mm, it's just a story. How did you start to rewrite that story in your mind? So like you came back from Bali, 
you had new mentors, for lack of a better word. You came back with a, a different perspective on life. Was it easy to start to rewrite that story? Like, I know you use tools like tapping, but how did, like, it was addiction just not in the cards after that? Like, was it that powerful of an experience or did your old stories start coming back into your life and you start weaving your way through them? Yeah, I was still addicted at that point to Adderall. You know, most addicts are cross-addicted to several things. I was the poster child for that. So I was addicted to Adderall and I was actually addicted to this substance called GHB that I would do on the weekends with my friends. I was focused though at the time of just taking everything in. Like I felt like I had so many issues that you can't tackle all of them at once. And I would profess to anybody, don't try to tackle all of them at once. Make one little change because one little change or one little doing one little thing can have the biggest shift. And then you do another little thing and another little thing. And all of a sudden that creates momentum. Mm, yep. Positive momentum. And then the, the rest of clearing some of these other things out are so much easier because you can actually see your future. It's clearer. Your goals are clearer. Your, your, everything is clearer. Your intention is clearer. So make that one shift. Take that one step. Crack that door open because the full, you know, one little shift can have the biggest impact. And that's what I did with taking this flow course. And then uh, one other thing that I had decided to do when I came back from Bali was to get rid of my cable TV because mm -hmm. I was wasting so much time with television and it was useless. I wanted to accomplish all these things. And I, I you know, I guess. Some people say, oh, well, you did accomplish things. You know, you had a business. It was doing well, multi-million dollar business. You had, I had three offices, 40 employees. But to me, it was like I wasn't passionate about it. And I didn't feel like I was making an impact on the world. At that point, I started shifting in, in, into the mindset that, no, I know I can have an, an impact on the world, like a major impact where I can help people who are struggling like I was. And so that's at the time. At that time, I decided to write this book. So I, I was kind of writing the, the book took me like a year and a half and I, I started writing the book and that brought up some old painful things that yeah. you had asked about before. So then I was kind of weaving in and out of that and eventually was able to stop the GHB and last year stopped the Adderall. I had a question. When you started experiencing, I guess, old wounds, right? You're going back into old stories. You're writing this book, new, like old feelings, memories are starting to come up. Did that make your current purpose stronger, experiencing all that through a new lens? Can you talk me through that? Yeah, it made it more impactful because I had numbed all of that pain from bouncing from one addiction to another. So I wasn't truly feeling it. Most people who have addictions are hiding an emotional wound. Like there's something they don't want to deal with emotionally. And that was, that was the case for me, at least. What was yours? I think that the way I was brought up, and I was very fortunate, lived in a middle-class family, had college paid for. So I have no complaints. But my parents weren't, affectionate people. I felt they almost had like a business-like relationship, even though they think they were affectionate, which is uh, the irony of it. Mm 
but their affection, like they came home, my dad would work 12 hours a day. He'd come home, you know, have dinner. And then he'd go to one side of the house and my mom would go to the other side of the house. When I would be around my friends, you know, like I would see their parents like holding hands and kissing and whatever. So like, I wasn't just in tune with all of that. And I think throughout growing up and all of this, like I never met my father and I, we never said like, I love you to each other. It wasn't until maybe five years ago that that started or four years or whatever it was. My mom always expressed her love, but she was very, she also very yelled a lot. It was a lot of yelling in the house. And, and look, I'm not telling any, don't cry me a river. I'm not, that's not why I'm telling this story, but I'm trying to explain where the emotional voids were for me. I didn't know how to express myself emotionally. So I turned to these other substances and uh, other addictions to avoid it. Do you express yourself emotionally now? Uh, way better than I did. We're all a work in progress and I'm no different. So yeah, I, I still um, believe I have work to do in that area and more on the, in the area of a relationship with you know, another woman and really being able to be truthful, not truthful, to be, well, to be truthful to what I'm feeling inside at all times and not try to be this stoic, you know, quote unquote man without a feminine side. I mean, we all have, all people have feminine and masculine. Yeah. But, you know, it's not cool if you're a man to be in tune with your feminine side around certain people in society, right? So, around the conscious community, it's totally accepted and, and appreciated. But outside of that, it's like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. You're a man. You fell down, you got a bruise. You know, you taught as a little kid, you get a bruise, get up and suck it up. Just keep going. That's kind of the mentality that, uh, that I speak of. How did pursuing your passion get you more in tune with your feminine like, and masculine energy? Because I've always felt like you know, when I started going after the things I really wanted, like, I mean, I started the same way business, did it for the money, made the money, realized the money wasn't really what I wanted. I wanted more purpose, passion, connection to the work I was doing. So then I started exploring that. I started opening up doors, started journaling, started meditating, started creating those avenues. When I started going down those journeys, I started feeling myself becoming more conscious in general. And I started appreciating all of the parts that came up in me, which coincidentally also made my purpose stronger and vice versa. Like the more I was connected to what I was doing, the more I accepted all of me and it was this dance back and forth. So have you had a similar experience where like pursuing your truth or pursuing your purpose or your passion or the way you want to impact others, has that allowed you to become more connected or open to these different sides of you? A hundred percent. And I feel alive again. I don't feel beaten down. Like I was going to work with the world on my shoulders. I felt like weighed down with negativity. Yeah. You know, I had the lawsuit. I had this business I hated. I actually hated the business I was running. And then I resented the employees. And, you know, I had these houses I was like that I thought I wanted and I was managing and running and tenants and, you know, all this stuff. Like I tell people I had millions and I lost it and I don't have millions anymore, but I'm way more fulfilled now than I was with the money. 
don't get me wrong. I know I need to make money and I need to make a good amount of it if I want to have the impact on the world that I want to have. So take no, uh, make no mistake about it. I, I certainly understand that, but it, I want to earn a lot of money now for a totally different reason than I did before. What does being fulfilled feel like? So for me, I don't believe in happiness. I believe in fulfillment. I distinguish them very differently. Fulfillment for me is, I feel like we have certain buckets in our life. Okay, we have all these different buckets. We have our health and wellness bucket. We have our entrepreneurship or business work bucket. We have our family bucket. We have our eating bucket, right? We have our arts and entertainment bucket, right? We have our mindfulness bucket. So we have all these buckets and there's others, obviously. And for me, I try to fill all those buckets at least halfway every single week. And if they're all filled halfway, then I have fulfillment. Mm. I define my fulfillment by filling the buckets up that I'm passionate about and that are important in my life halfway. Because if you're filling two of those buckets full and the others are all empty, eventually you're going to burn out regardless yeah. of what it is. Eventually you're not, you're going to be dissatisfied. You're going to be borrowing energy. Exactly. How did you figure out what your buckets were? Just evolution. You know, one of the things I talk about in, in my book, Chasing the High, is I have a chapter called The Habit of Habit Making. I feel like we all need to make it a habit to make habits. Yeah. It's a muscle. And our habits change because the whole goal in life is to evolve. We all want to evolve as humans. So as we evolve, our habits need to evolve. So even if they're positive habits, I might have had a habit five years ago that I've been doing for the last five years, but it's not really serving me anymore. I've evolved beyond it. So I replace it with a new habit that brings me a higher level of fulfillment. And I do that through the what I call the power of curiosity. <laughs> and I feel like... A lot of people, as we get older, okay, and as we, you know, fall into that societal trap of this is what you are expected to do, and this is how you are expected to live. I say, no, that is a story that you are hearing from the outside and you are telling yourself. We all have the power to change are dynamic. It doesn't matter what it is. And we and the way I've done it is through the power of curiosity. By trying things that I previously had an impression a negative impression of because the people around me had a negative impression of it, not because I actually experienced it for myself. And so tapping into that curiosity allows me to experience it and I'm not going to enjoy and resonate with everything I try, but there will be things I resonate with that I had no idea I even enjoyed, but by tapping into that curiosity, I have now invited it into my life. So an example for me would be like sound baths. Have you been to a sound bath before? No, what is that? 
Oh my God, you uh, you, you seem very evolved. You meditate. You do a lot of great things. <laughs> no jewels. I already know. You have to go to a sound bath. So a sound bath is a combination of sound therapy and meditation. So okay. you you go and you lay down usually on your back, okay? And there's an instructor in in front of the class, and they're taking you through a an hour long sound journey by using various bowls these big bowls, right? And they take an instrument and make various sounds by circling the bowl and touching the bowl. And then they have a couple other like wind chimes and a couple other um, instruments they use. And the wind chimes sound like you're like near an ocean. Okay. So they just kind of take you on this journey and you're completely peaceful and at ease for an hour or however long it is. I really feel like I'm actually high when I'm sitting through there and listening to them. And I haven't done one drug at all. And it's just, it's an amazing feeling. What does being high on life feel like? It sounds like that's what you're, you're, I mean, you've changed the high you're chasing to this like really amazing sort of fulfilling ecstasy if you would that sits on the other side of you doing things that bring you fulfillment you doing things that bring you joy you chasing the trail of curiosity like what does that high feel like look i don't want to like make it seem like it's all rainbows and unicorns right we still have we still have life we have to deal with to get to those points there are pain, there's pain that you have to experience, there's challenges you have to experience, right? Like building your businesses and, and things of that nature. It's not, it's, it's not easy. Like having the impact that I want to have now, it's not like easy, but because it's a whole new world and it's like, how do you, in the sea of voices, how do you get yours heard? Right. But to answer your question, I've never actually thought of it like being high on life. I, I I just bring it back to fulfillment. You know, in the addiction days, it's very easy to live in the one, twos, and threes and the seven, eight, nine, and tens. It's very difficult to live in the fives and sixes, mm. right? Interesting, yeah. So to be able to live in that fives and six and even seven range, it's the fulfillment that I look for. It's like going to that sound bath that really hits me and I'm like in ecstasy for an hour. It's having that a couple times a week, right? It's being able to, I, I enjoy running. I had a broken foot for, and it, that affected me for several months, but it's able to just go outside in nature and then go run on near the beach. I think getting outside in nature is huge. Also, it can change your emotions. It can change your demeanor, it can change how you feel, whether it's a hike whether it's going on the beach, whether it's just taking a walk and breathing the air, mm-hmm. it can completely change, you know, your, the way you feel. It's continually setting those as habits when I talk about the habit of habit making and utilizing and tapping into those whenever you're feeling frustration, worry, loneliness, troublesome. It's almost like you experiencing those one, twos, and threes and those not eight, nines, and tens gave you an increased sensitivity to everything in the middle and the day-to-day. So let me ask you this, if you could have your life over, 
would you skip that first gamble? Would you like divert Michael from, you know, maybe getting and playing those cards or having all those resources or access to gambling and live addiction free? Or do you think those addictions have given you something more precious today? No, I wouldn't change those things. What I would change is learning my lessons uh, earlier, surrounding myself with the great people I have in my life now, earlier, 10 years earlier, that I would change if I could, but I can't, so I won't. Mm -hmm. I will be thankful for the experiences I've had and continue to speak my truth. If it impacts one person on, on this you know, call, then that's great. Then I know I have to keep moving forward and keep doing it. What's your truth? My truth is that change is possible is easy. Anybody can achieve it, no matter what situation you're in. I'm the perfect example of going from a negative, mean, angry, self-loathing person, no matter what I achieved, no matter what I had, internally, that's how I felt, to a positive, impactful, optimistic human that wants to make impact and help others that are in, that were in the same exact position that are excuse me in the same position I was in because there's thousands like that it's almost like your pain became your purpose your pain your hurt became your message your mess became your message in a way yeah which is a really powerful thing it's it's you know and i've i've always thought that when you can learn to look at your past through the lens of gratitude or acceptance or forgiveness you start to realize that everything you've gone through in your life is almost like a chapter in a book. And if you think about the biggest superheroes or the best movies or the best stories, the icons that we idolize, the people that we learn from, there's always these peaks and valleys and they wouldn't be able to impact at the peak that they're impacting at without having a valley to stand on. Like, I mean, it's crazy to me, man, really. Like you went from like, having an extremely addictive personality to almost going cold turkey on a lot of different things. Like, so what replaced the void? I still have an extremely addictive personality. There's no doubt. I'm an adrenaline junkie. So, you know, I, anytime I can find adrenaline, I seek it out. I just try to make it healthy in nature. Mm. And remember by building a solid foundation of habits, that you can lean on, they won't get out of control like they were. So you still selectively allow yourself to have that addictive personality. You've just built systems in your life that almost like safeguard you from going down any one or many paths. Yeah. Yeah. And look, there's, there's times when, especially in entrepreneurship, right, that we're in, you have deadlines, you have, yep. you have to get stuff done. And, you know, you're going to have to work, you know, the 12 hour day, 14 hour day, maybe 14 hour days for the whole week just to get something done. I get it that I've done it, uh, you know, but I don't allow that to sustain itself. And I incorporate some of the principles that I believe in that have worked for me into my life. The other thing that I do that I think is extremely important is I have several what I call tribes that I'm a part of, of like-minded individuals who I can relate to and can relate to me 
that in those times I can lean on and I can speak to. And I'm speaking to your tribe right now. So you know more than anybody the importance of tribes. I have several tribes in my life. You know, I have the unconventional life tribe, which you know about. I have the flow tribe. I have this tribe called YEC, which is Young Entrepreneurial Council made up of all entrepreneurs doing a million plus in business. I have the Leukemia Lymphoma Society tribe. So a tribe that when I want to go do philanthropic stuff, you know, I I can tap into. What I love most about that, and I just want to comment on this, the concept of tribes, you're not trying to find every part of you in one tribe. You have, it's, you're exploring every part of you through different tribes. You know, like, I think that's one of the biggest problems with the relationship. I was listening to something from a woman named Esther Perel. Have you, have you heard of her? She, she had this TED talk that went viral. It's like the most watched TED talk of all time on why people cheat. And oh. like, so she's like a relationship therapist and she had this really interesting theory on relationships, you know, like most people, they connect themselves to one tribe or one person and expect to get every level of fulfillment from that one avenue. But when you do that, you create this unhealthy level of ups and downs with a single tribe or a single person that doesn't allow you to experience that fulfillment that can happen when you just silo yourself into buckets, which sounds like you've done amazingly. Yeah, it's, it's unrealistic expectations also. Yeah, it is. And I, and I, I love the, the, the buckets. And it's a really healthy reminder for me in this conversation, just the buckets, like being clear on your buckets is one thing. And then being clear on the people that are in those buckets for you is also a part of it. Like, right? Like, I mean, connection is a, is a deep part of fulfillment. Like some of my most fulfilling moments come from having deep, meaningful conversations like these with friends and and having conversations on specific topics. Like I wouldn't have this conversation with my father. I would have a different kind of conversation with that tribe, but it's so important to have clarity on what you want and then surround yourself with people that fit in those modalities, but you don't have to find everything in one person or one tribe. Damn. hundred percent. And you can't, you yeah. can't, it's, it's just not possible or practical. Yeah. Why do you think people think it is? Maybe lack of experience or, un, again, unrealistic expectations. Where do you think those expectations come from? Society. Yeah. What they hear, media. Yeah. The worst thing anybody can do that's part of your tribe that's listening right now is watch the news tonight, tomorrow <laughs> night, or any other night. <laughs> pretty, pretty true. I'm not saying don't be informed, but, you know, the news is just so negative. And it creates... You know, the media in general, I'm not here to bash the media. Obviously, it's very important. But, you know, it, it's, it sets unrealistic expectations because you see two sides of it, right? It's, it's much like my, my journey through addiction. You see the one, twos, and threes, which is all the negative side of everything happening in the world, and the eight, nines, and tens, which is all the celebrities and all the unrealistic things that go on. Yeah. And that's what they celebrate, so. Let me ask you this. Now that you're moving forward in life, you don't know what's coming next. You have no idea what's coming tomorrow. You know what you've experienced in your past. So when you're moving through life, how do you move forward with clarity, certainty, and maybe even fulfillment, knowing that life is full of uncertainty based on where you came from? Really, you came from a lot of roller coaster. You came from the one, twos, and threes, the eight, nines, and tens. How do you move forward with clarity? 
knowing that that's been your past? I tend not to look at it like that. Uh, There's a saying I always like to say, the road to success is always under construction. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) That's how I view it. Always. What I have, I have a goal. A BHAG. You heard of a BHAG before? Big, hairy, audacious goals. Bingo. So mine is to affect 1 million entrepreneurs and business leaders who are dealing with addictive and compulsive behaviors positively affect change in their lives within the next five years. Mm. And that is my goal. And I've created a course under my platform called FATE, F-A-T-E, From Addict to Entrepreneur. Mm. That program, I'm rolling out a 10-week program to work with entrepreneurs and business leaders who are in those scenarios to make them make sure that they are paying attention to themselves first, loving themselves, treating themselves well, being healthy, all of those things so that they can show up as the leader that they want to be, as the family man or woman that they know they are, and as the friend they would want the friend to be to them. So, you know, that program, and if anybody's interested in that, I'm actually running a free webinar that talks all about it starting July 1st that we can leave a link. I love that name, man. From Addict to Entrepreneur, it's beautiful. It's like you were, it was your fate to create it. I do an interview series now where I interview former addicts who are now entrepreneurs. It's on YouTube. It's called the same thing. Beautiful. No, man, we'll make sure all these links are available. Your book, you said you just released it. Is it available on Amazon, your website? Where's, where, can, where can people find Chasing the High? Yes, you can find it on Amazon. And you can access it just by going to book dot com. Very simple, nice, and easy. And uh, I encourage your listeners to check it out. And if it resonates with them, uh, leave a review. That would be great. Beautiful. I usually end the podcast with a specific question, but just based on this conversation, I'm going to tweak it just a little bit. I feel honored that you're tweaking your last question. You're tweaking it a little bit, yeah, because I feel called to ask it. I guess it's a two-part question. What would you say to that 11-year-old self right now if you could look back on your life? And two, how do you stay grounded in your truth? The 11-year-old self, I would say, don't make emotional decisions. Because every time I've made emotional decisions, they've ended in a very negative place. And how do you stay grounded in the lessons, the past, the future you're going? How do you stay grounded in all of it? Through... Some of the things I've talked about here through the practices and habits that I've integrated into my life, through knowing that path to success is under construction, and to the bigger goal of really wanting to help change lives and change people's lives who are in pain internally. They don't, and the solutions out there aren't comfortable for them to turn to. I want to be the alternate and really help them come from a negative place, an isolated place to a positive, connected place. Mm. That's something beautiful to stay grounded in. All right. Well, Michael, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, share your story with me and the community. And I took a lot out of it and I took a lot, especially I needed the reminder 
of tribes. I need, I needed to hear that because I've got a lot of tribes in my life. This one included that bring joy in many different ways. And then combining that with the idea that the road to success is always under construction just makes each tribe mean so much more. So I'm really grateful for the reminder and thank you for showing up with so much authenticity, my man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Appreciate uh, you having me. Absolutely. Well, everybody, that is a wrap for this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I'm your host, Raj. This is your friend, Michael. And from us, stay grounded. We'll chat soon. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to live an extraordinary life. For more resources and support, please visit www.rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded to join the official Stay Grounded Facebook group, a place where aspiring life enthusiasts can connect and ignite passion for life together. My hope is that the positivity, content, resources, and support in this group will resonate with you on a deeper level. That what you hear in our podcast, read in our thoughtful posts, or learn in our courses will empower you to live with intention, uncover true purpose, and challenge the internal dialogues that stop you from being who you really want to be in your life. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay grounded.